For those of you uh, who actually don't know me, uh, my name is Mike Chobani and I'm the program director of transplant. Uh, this is a special day for us, although it doesn't exactly uh, meet the exact 25th anniversary of transplantation. That actually occurred last July. But uh, I was very uh, fortunate to be able to get support from Dr. Wong in surgery and Dr. Rothstein in medicine to put this joint uh, transplant grand rounds together to uh, really celebrate uh, transplantation. And what one of the things that's uh, most important, as I said before, for the surgical grand rounds is it takes heroic people to advance something like transplantation and to look at the future and beyond because what it does most is it gives us hope to give to patients so that they can lead a reasonably normal life because it's very difficult to live with uh, chronic diseases that don't seem to have much of a future. But in transplantation, one of those uh, things is to look beyond their suffering and give them hope that they actually might get their lives back. So that's why we celebrate that today. As an administrative chore, I'm supposed to tell you, for those of you that get CME credits, 38 UD is your code. Oh, it's up there. Great. <laughs> so the medical aspect of uh, Grand Rounds is going to be given by Randy Noel, Dr. Randy Noel. And believe me, he doesn't need an introduction for the people here at Dartmouth who know him. Dr. Randy Noel is a well-known friend and colleague to many of us here at Dartmouth. He's been a full professor of immunology and held an endowed, endowed chair for more than a decade. His research career has spanned four decades. Having received his PhD at the University of Albany and his postdoc in immunology from Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, his professional career was enhanced more recently by the appointment to full professor of immunotherapy and transplant science at King's College London. For that position, he received the Burroughs Welcome Trust Distinction Award. After more than 250 publications, innumerable patents, and major grant awards, including a merit award from the NIH, he's been cited as having written a pillar of immunology article, a most prestigious citation and landmark patent, uh, paper in the Journal of Immunology. He's best known for the discovery of CD154 on T helper cells in 1991. His lab has since found multiple areas in which to translate those basic science discoveries into translating clinical trials today. With the development of agonistic anti-CD40 antibody-based vaccines, anti-tumor trials have been launched with preliminary findings showing great promise. With his latest immunologic discovery, protein death ligand, also known as VISTA, he's expanded the field of oncology and rheumatology providing hope to lupus and cancer patients alike. For us, Dr. Noel has been nothing short of a friend and a colleague who will always be willing to help us, always willing to guide us, and always willing to teach us. He's a true treasure for us, who have the pleasure of having a cup of coffee with him on a regular basis. Please welcome him today as he will speak about achieving graft tolerance, the holy grail. Thank you, sir.
Michael, thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. Um, so today, let's talk about uh, transplant tolerance, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a very uh, high bar in, uh, in the minds of transplanters and immunologists alike. Next. Come on. Um, the identification and function um, of two immune molecules, uh, namely PD-1 and CTLA-4, have revolutionized our approach uh, to cancer immunotherapy and provided overwhelming therapeutic value. Uh, these two molecules um, are negative checkpoint regulators. And simply by blocking the activity of these negative checkpoint regulators, with antibodies, we've been able to uh, achieve remarkable therapeutic success in a variety of uh, malignancies. What this teaches us is it teaches us that if we know the right molecules to target, we can exert profound immunoregulatory activities in humans. The challenge in transplantation of allogeneic organs and tissues is different, of course. Um, in this context, can we teach the host uh, to ignore the presence of these foreign antigens and allow them to peacefully coexist with self? And that's the challenge for today. Are there strategies to induce tolerance to alloantigens and allow long-lived persistence of an allogeneic tissue or organ without continued immunosuppression? Answer to that is it's it's it could very well be around the corner. So let me take you back a little bit to 1960 with uh, the Nobel winner Burnett and and Medawar um, in defining tolerance and how we are engineered not to make immune responses to us. <clears throat> tolerance is defined as a state of indifference or non-reactivity towards a substance that would be normally immunogenic. And this indifference that we develop, develops early in life. Tolerance, um, as we know, it comes basically in two pieces. Central tolerance um, develops in the thymus. And so T-cell emigrants migrate from the bone marrow into the thymus. Those T-cells expressing sort of random T-cell receptors, um, those T-cell receptors that don't see anything in the thymus are eliminated because of ignorance. There's no stimulation, and they just eventually die. Those that see the host at low affinity to moderate affinity, they get triggered through TCR, and they are triggered to live. And so this positive selection uh, begins to shape the T-cell repertoire that and eventually um, enters the periphery. T-cells that see um, self-antigens at very, very high avidity and aggressively respond to those self-antigens in the thymus are deleted by negative selection. And so the guys that we've got to worry about, the guys that we got to worry about are the ones that see us at low affinity. The problem is that the thymus is imperfect, and many of those low affinity self-reactive cells enter the periphery. Central tolerance happens, for the most part, the same way for T cells and B cells. B cells that are highly self-reactive 
are eliminated in the bone marrow. B cells that are weakly self-reactive are able to escape to the periphery. So what happens in the periphery? How do we control those low affinity cells that are out there in the periphery? There was a hypothesis that was developed back in the 90s, the two-signal hypothesis, and it goes something like this. A lot of drugs are developed around this hypothesis. So if a T cell sees its antigen, and the T cell receptor only gets signaled, so there's only signal one, that T cell, by engagement of the T cell receptor, will go through either rounds of division and death, it will become functionally unresponsive energy, or it will transition to a suppressive T cell. So that's in the event of only signal one being engaged. To get a productive, robust immune response, there has to be a co-stimulatory signal, so-called signal two. And with this co-stimulatory signal, then those T cells go on and make an immune response. Fine. So two signals to make an immune response, one signal to basically eradicate an immune response. So let's go back to peripheral tolerance. In peripheral tolerance, T cells are seeing self-antigens all the time. We are always doing this. Our self-antigens are constantly being presented on our antigen-presenting cells. And our T cells are seeing them, but they're seeing them only with signal one. There is no co-stimulatory signal. And the reason why is because we have a quiescent, non-inflamed environment. In the quiescent state, the presentation of self-antigens on non-activated antigen-presenting cells either induces energy of those self-reactive cells, suppression of those self-reactive cells, or actual physical deletion. All right, so this goes on all the time. Now, take the concept that if we could, instead of presenting self-antigen in this fashion, could we present alloantigen in the same way? If theoretically, if we could present alloantigen in a quiescent, non-inflammatory environment, we could induce peripheral tolerance. All right. So a little more granularity. The second signal, at least one of the second signals, we know about. One of the second signals is, is mediated by a molecule on T cells called CD28. And that molecule on T cells binds to a set of molecules called CD80 or CD86. Engagement of TCR and then engagement of CD28 drives robust T cell activation, cytokine production, proliferation, and the, the acquisition of a robust immune response. If we disrupt this signal somehow, if we were to break the ability of CD28 on the T cell to bind to CD8086 on the APC, then we should achieve a situation where only signal one, energy suppression apoptosis, is induced. So a drug that you guys know, and know well and probably love was developed around this. Let me, I have to go back and <clears throat> tell you a related story about how this drug got to where it is.
So CD28 is the positive signal that drives activated T cells to grow and proliferate. There is another molecule called CTLA4 that comes up on an activated T cell. It's a much higher affinity binder of CD80 and CD86. Because this is a much higher affinity binder, it offered the opportunity to create a therapeutic using that molecule to block this interaction. And so let me show you. And so CTLA4 was taken. It's a transmembrane protein. The extracellular domain that binds CD80 and 86, 80, CD80 and 86 was uh, grafted onto the heavy chains of human immunoglobulin and basically created a soluble CTLA-4. This soluble CTLA-4 is going to bind to CD80 and 86 and disrupt interactions. This molecule is called abatacept. Uh, um, There's a, a, a relative of abatacept called abatacept. Abatacept is a higher affinity binder of CD80 and 86. And so this should be the magical molecule. This molecule will disrupt the interactions between CD80 and CD, CD28 and CD80 and 86 and only provide signal one to that T cell. And so delivery of this therapeutic should induce tolerance in the T cell compartment by restricting co-stimulation through CD28. All right. And so this has entered clinical trials and there's a reasonable history and there's some debate about its clinical efficacy. And so the study that was done was a seven-year study comparing uh, bilatacept to other um, immunosuppressive regimes. And you can argue with the interpretations and the conclusions. The study was designed um, to look at graft survival um, and um, other clinical parameters, comparing cyclosporin-based therapeutics, bilatacept low dose, and bilatacept high dose. The end product was that seven years after transplantation, patients and graft survival seemingly were improved by bilatacept therapy. Um, GFR was significantly higher in the bilatacept-treated group um, and looked to be a, an encouraging therapeutic. But the bottom line, you can argue with the clinical results and the interpretation based on the comparators that were used in the study. But the bottom line, did we achieve clinical operational tolerance by blocking CD28? The answer is no. Can, did we see stable and acceptable graft function without continued suppression through the use of Batacept? No. So why? Why when we blocked CD28, which I presume uh, Batacept does quite well, why didn't we achieve long-lived stable tolerance? Well, as immunology progresses, the list gets longer. And there are other co-stimulatory molecules. This is the short list. <laughs> um, and you know, some of these are secondary. It's clear that CD28 is primary. That's the big winner in T-cell co-stimulation. But there are other ways to replace CD28. And so what are we to do? Um, if we have to block all of these other co-stimulatory molecules? Well, maybe the answer is you try to find an upstream regulator of all of these. Um, the next set of studies I will not be, I will not be objective about 
Um, as Michael said, about 1991 or two, we discovered a molecule called CD40 ligand. Um, and it's a very long history, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that history in a very few slides. CD40 ligand's an interesting molecule. It briefly comes up on the surface of your activated T cells. When it comes up on the surface of your activated T cells, it binds to its receptor. And its receptor is an important molecule for the immune system. CD40 is on B cells. Um, it's on dendritic cells. It's on a variety of other cells. And in general, it is an activator of those cells. It drives B cell growth differentiation. It, it really is the on-off switch for adaptive immunity. What you can see here for B cells, it drives B cell expansion. It dri drives B cell differentiation. You do not make an immune response, an antibody immune response, if you don't have CD40 ligand. You don't generate B cell memory without CD40 ligand. You don't license your dendritic cells for them to be able to present antigen effectively. And in addition, in the context of what we're talking about today, it controls the expression of many, many co-stimulatory molecules. So with the discovery of CD40 ligand and its central role in controlling adaptive immunity, um, uh, we decided to make antibodies to CD40 ligand. So we made both anti-mouse and anti-human <clears throat> CD40 ligand antibodies. These antibodies blocked the function of this molecule and proved in mouse models and in non-human primates that the antibody could block all of these activities. You could wipe out adaptive immunity. In addition to um, sort of generic immune responses, the antibody also went into numerous mouse models of autoimmunity in and, and transplantation, as well in, as in non-human primate models. And you can see the long list of effective tar targeting that can be seen with anti-CD40 ligand as far as therapeutic intervention in a variety of these disease indications. Since we're talking about transplant today, let me tell you the story behind transplant and anti-CD40 ligand and perhaps operational tolerance. So the way that we uh, do um, allogeneic tolerance is we take <clears throat> alloantigen, and in our case, alloantigen is simply a population of leukocytes bearing alloantigen, donor-specific transfusion. And so we take <clears throat> an infusion of alloantigen-bearing leukocytes, we inject them into a mouse, we treat them with anti-CD40 ligand, and follow the survival of a skin graft that's matched to that alloantigen, to that DST. And we ask, with brief intervention with CD40, anti-CD40 ligand, do we induce long-lived acceptance of this allograft? Um, here, is the, here are the results. Uh, each individual, if, if you put on a syngeneic graft, it lives forever. If you put on an allogeneic graft in these models, they get eliminated in about 20 days. Anti-CD40 ligand alone is ineffective. DST, just the infusion of leukocytes, is ineffective. But together, anti-CD40 ligand and the infusion of alloantigens induces permanent long-lived tolerance without any continued immunosuppression. And now just remember, we believe, and I'll show you on the next slide, we believe, in fact, we know that when we inject these, these allogeneic leukocytes, the antigens from these allogeneic leukocytes get picked up by host dendritic cells. 
However, because of the presence of anti-CD40 ligand, these dendritic cells stay quiescent, and they begin presenting alloantigens on a quiescent background, just like they would be presenting self-antigens. And the consequence of that are twofold. First, the endogenous alloreactive T cells, they go through rounds of division and then die. And so you eliminate about 90% of those endogenous alloreactive cells because they're seeing alloantigen on a quiescent antigen-presenting cell. But even more importantly, um, you generate a population of alloreactive alloreactive, uh, regulatory T cells. And these alloreactive regulatory T cells and the remaining effector cells enter the graft. But what you've done is you've shifted the balance enormously to the favor of the regulatory cells. And so you have a large number of alloreactive-specific regulatory T cells, suppressor cells, and a small number of effector cells, and they live in the graft. And when you stain, what's in red is a stain for CD4, which picks up many of the effector cells and the regulatory cells. And the yellow stain is for a stain for regulatory T cells. So when you look at this tolerant allograft that's sitting on the mouse for 100 days, you see pretty hefty CD4 infiltration. But most of those cells are suppressor T cells. And so to achieve long-lived tolerance, those two things have to happen. You've got to eradicate the majority of the effector cells, the alloreactive effector cells, (laughs) through peripheral tolerance mechanisms energy or apoptosis, and then drive the emergence of suppressor T cells, and it works very well in the mouse. So with this, we also developed an anti-human anti-CD40 ligand. The antibody was humanized, so it would be suitable for um, uh, human application. Um, We developed GMP-quality material, so it could be used in clinical trials. And this antibody is designated as IDEC-131. It was a licensing agreement between Dartmouth and a small biotech company at the time, IDEC, um, and they humanized the antibody. <clears throat> you take a monkey and you immunize the monkey with ovalbumin, shown here twice on day zero and on day 42. You administer anti-CD40 ligand. And and at five mg per kg, you can completely wipe out the antibody response, as would one have predicted. Further studies showed that this IDEC-131 could perform spectacularly in blocking dendritic cell activation, B cell activation, et cetera. So it was performing the way we anticipated it would perform. With this success, actually, we ran a small phase one clinical trial at Dartmouth in in remitting relapsing MS with Lloyd Casper. I won't go into it in depth, but patients with active disease is marked by the excess of gadolinium-enhanced lesions prior to entry into the trial, got four treatments weekly with anti-CD40 ligand, followed out for four or five years, um, and appeared that the antibody had an impact on the incidence of flares in this population of remitting relapsing patients. Too small to make much of an argument. Another company was also developing an anti-CD40 ligand, Biogen. 
And in their early clinical trials, again, extremely promising results. In lupus, they saw drops in anti-double-stranded DNA and increases in C3 as a consequence of therapy. So everything looked great. The antibody <clears throat> had the therapeutic types of activities that we saw in, in mice and in non-human primates. Finally, um, Alan Kirk um, assessed the activity of this antibody inducing clinical operational tolerance. The story here is very much like the story I told you about transplant in mice. What um, Alan did was he um, assessed whether or not anti-CD40 ligand, DST, seven mils per, per keg of whole heparinized blood, and serolimus could induce long-lived kidney allograft uh, survival in the absence of prolonged immunosuppression. And what you can see down here and here is this combination of treatments, anti-ligand, serolimus, and DST, allowed long-lived acceptance of these kidney allografts. In addition, what Alan did was he then transplanted these tolerant um, uh, monkeys without matched allogeneic skin. There was no, re there's no re uh, rejection of the matched allogeneic skin. And interestingly, there was rapid rejection of third-party skin. And so the induction of allotolerance was specific, long-lived in the absence of immunosuppression. Everything was great until. Uh, um, and so uh, in the early trials, um, Biogen and IDEC entered five or six phase two trials. Um, and there were thromboembolic events. There were two deaths associated with anti-ligand therapy, completely unexpected. Um, intimal hyperplasia, vasculopathies were observed, arterial blood clots were observed. And for the most part, um, uh, the, all the trials were halted. Then for some mysterious, crazy reason, IDEC and Biogen merged. Um, and uh, that put an end to the entire program. Nobody wanted to go after CD40 ligand ever again because of its, 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 its lethal uh, immune-related toxicities. And so that was 2003. And from 2003 to now, um, there were studies to begin to evaluate what these thromboembolic activities were all about. And we know um, what happens is that in addition to CD40 ligand being on the surface of T cells, there's also soluble CD40 ligand floating around. And as the theory goes, the anti-ligand <clears throat> forms complexes with multimeric CD40 ligand and forms these complexes. These complexes bind to platelets and activate platelets to, um, to generate thrombi. Um, and as a consequence, the FC region of anti-CD40 ligand plays a, played a very significant role in its toxicity. So the FC region of that immunoglobulin had to bind to FC receptors, CD32A is an FC receptor, on platelets to cause toxicity. And so the question emerged, can we make a silent anti-CD40 ligand? And so can we take anti-CD40 ligand and silence the FC region and still have clinical activity? Well, a couple of papers came out um, in 2003 saying, nope, 
You can't silence the FC region of CD40 ligand because it loses its biologic activity. Well, those turned out to be wrong. Um, and so, indeed, we and others showed that you can silence the FC region of um, anti-CD40 ligand and still have activity. And here is an example. Um, this is allograft tolerance induced by anti-CD40 ligands that are silent, that do not bind to FC receptors. And so the, one would predict that a silent, FC silent, anti-human CD40 ligand antibody would work. So now 2014, um, 11 years later, um, we took IDEC-131, and we silenced the FC region of IDEC-131. And at the same time, we figured we might as well make it a better antibody, so we affinity matured its binding. Um, and uh, it works well. There's no thrombotic activities in mouse models. We did a small non-GLP tox study in, in monkeys. Um, and it still maintains all of its biologic activities. So we had a non-toxic anti-CD40 ligand. And um, the question is, will anti-CD40 ligand induce operational tolerance in humans? And that we don't know yet. In 2016, it was licensed to Sanofi. Um, and next year, it will be back in humans. So that's only... <laughs> Um, what's next year, 2019? So that's only 16 years. And so what's the rush? So the question is, will this work in humans? There's great data in monkeys. There's great data in mice. And so what is the signature of clinical operational tolerance in humans? Well, um, a number of groups have looked at this. And it seems rather axiomatic that uh, to find biomarkers of tolerant transplant patients. You need tolerant transplant patients. And so um, the groups, a consortium in Europe and the Immune Tolerance Network um, in, uh, in the United States, found about 30 non-compliant patients that went off their immunosuppressive regimes um, and retained their allograft. All males, by the way, um, uh, who went off their regime. Um, and so the signature that they found is not the signature that we expected at all. Over here, you can see that in general, these 30 individuals had an upregulation of a number of B cell genes. They increased the frequency of naive B cells and transitional B cells. And you could find transcripts for B cells elevated in the urine of these individuals. Here are some of the targets that are shown to be upregulated in this tolerant group. Assessment of these targets gives you a reasonably high level of confidence that these are pretty decent biomarkers to assess uh, the, the tolerant or non-tolerant status of an individual. These tolerance biomarkers can be valuable um, because one, if, if one trusted these as tolerant phenotype markers, one could adjust the levels of immunosuppression. You could evaluate new tolerance therapies to see whether or not they induce this type of signature. And you could better understand how we regulate immune responses. And so the natural acquisition of tolerance in humans is not what we expected 
from a lot of the therapeutic interventions that we envision to be used for tolerance induction. So where do B cells come into the story? We don't see B cells as the good guys. We see B cells as the bad guys, right? B cells get activated in response to grafting um, to, to produce donor-specific antibodies. And perhaps even more importantly, once B cells get activated and you expand a population of alloreactive B cells, these guys are fantastic antigen-presenting cells that drive T cell responses um, robustly. And so B cells have never been envisioned as um, immunosuppressive. But the observation that um, B cells can be a signatory for tolerance did support the field that started looking at regulatory B cells as immunosuppressive mediators in graft acceptance and rejection. Kind of washed out, but there have been now defined subsets of B cells that produce IL-10, TGF-beta, that can suppress a whole litany of different T cell phenotypes, TH17s, TH1s, et cetera. In addition, the production of IL-10 and, and, and uh, TGF-beta by Bregs can suppress a litany of myeloid functions. And finally, regulatory B cells express molecules that can actually kill other leukocytes, fast ligand and PDL1. And so what is the final word on B cells? and um, it, their role in regulation of transplantation, some folks in the audience know more than, much more than I, is pan-B cell depletion good or bad? It goes in both directions. There certainly are studies that show that pan-B cell depletion using rituximab can improve <clears throat> long-lived um, allograft survival. But there are other studies that suggest that pan-B cell depletion can facilitate graft rejection. And so we need to be, begin to try to understand the balance between the uh, aggressive nature of B cells in driving graft rejection and the immunoregulatory function of B cells in providing long-lived graft acceptance. So in closing, where are we um, with regard to immunotherapy? And I think we've turned the page. I think with the success of ipilimumab, nivolumab in uh, generating protective anti-tumor immune responses, we're starting to think of using antibodies as drugs that control immune responses, that control, that impact on immunoregulation. Um, with regard to um, new, new approaches in the area of energy and silencing immunity, um, we are beginning to identify what that energic T cell looks like. So in all of us, presuming mice are right, about 5% of our T cells are seeing self-antigen all the time and becoming energic. There's a phenotype that we can see. Um, we are learning what that phenotype is. We are learning the transcriptional profile of those energic cells. We're learning the biochemistry to induce that energic phenotype. It can't be very long before we can take alloantigens and drive that energic phenotype um, in humans. Um, we know now that the cells that see uh, antigen in the absence of co-stimulation do become energic, and there is a linked pathway that these energic cells ultimately die or they become regulatory suppressor T cells.
So we're learning a lot about the molecules and mediators and transcriptional profiles that control the development of energy. And just like unleashing immunity in cancer, we should be able to use antibodies to drive the development of energic T cells and provide clinically operational tolerance. So with that, I'll stop and happy to answer any questions. Yes. So the biggest question we have in uh, transplantation is it looks to me like if you prep the patient like the mouse or the rat or any other animal, then you can control the immune system a lot better. We don't have that ability. We get called for an organ and we put the organ in. And so how do you translate that animal study where you can control that immune system to a person who is sitting there waiting for that graft to come? Generally, that graft is not perfect because it uh, is removed from its blood supply, it becomes hypoxemic. Uh, UW solution can help, but it's not perfect. It's not being oxygenated effectively, and it's cooled down. And then we put it in, and that's that reperfusion injury or damage to the graft up front that then exposes all the antigen and an immune system that's ready to pounce on it. So it's, it's all, all about prophylactically providing alloantigen to a quiescent immune system prior to that. And how long does it take to induce energy? A days, a day. You can start initiating that, that program of shutting down the alloreactive T cell repertoire. And as long as alloantigen is there, it will sustain that energic phenotype. So the, 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 the real uh, challenge is to provide alloantigen under a quiescent, calm situation, right? Present it like you would present self-antigen. And under those conditions, we know that you, you shut down those antigen-specific cells. Your immune system doesn't know itself. It's seeing an antigen. And so if you replace self with aloe, as you would with a donor transfusion, then those cells will shut down. I don't know what time window you have. If you have donor blood, um, it could be hours, 24 hours, until you see the initiation of that energic cycle the shutting down of T cells, the driving of suppressor T cells. So what you're suggesting, Randy, though, and, and Ponce, uh, you know, we get concerned about prolonged cold ischemic time, prolonged warm ischemic time. So if you, you're suggesting that we should be prepping our patients up front before we try to put that graft in that patient. Yes. So, I mean, I'm, I'll, so it works with living donation. Yes. But you don't see it in these trials. So when you read these trials for these things, they're talking about, you know, putting the kidney in, and at the time of surgery, that's when we are delivering these meds, correct? Yeah, but we, we have, we have uh, the, trial, the trial has been done. We are uh, starting with Oscar Salvatierra's uh, paper, and I think it was in the mid-'80s, on a specific process. Actually, it was Kawasaki. Kawasaki and Opal's 1976. That's all paid by transplantation. Donor specific transfusions and program survival. Now, I have to say, we never had a trial. And uh, 
and ask us our terror if voluntary donor specific contributions in line with us. And we copied it immediately, and uh, about 30 to 40 percent of patients became sensitized mm -hmm. and had to be rolled out. Mm -hmm. So we did it under Imuran coverage, and that reduced sensitization somewhat. So, I mean, so DST, so the infusion of allogeneic cells, we know from mouse models at least, it's quite, DST alone is quite effective at getting rid of 95% of the effectors. But it does nothing to drive the regulatory T cells. If you only get rid of the effectors and do nothing to the regulatory T cell compartment, when you put a graft on, you get immediate graft rejection. 5% residual effectors is enough to reject the graft. Well, what, what would you give now? Let's say we have a donor. We, we do 130 uh, live donors a year. Could easily doing a trial. Um, actually, so it, it's confounding because you need to you need to con continue to support the CD4 compartment because the CD4 compartment is going to give rise to regulatory cells that are critical for long-lived tolerance. So in all these models that I show you where there's long-lived tolerance, it's not the absence of a response. You get rid of those regulatory cells, that graft rejects with first-order kinetics. And so it's an active, clinical operational tolerance is an active process of suppression, right? And so you've got to maintain the CD4 compartment intact, so you can't go around and start deleting things. Anti-CD40 lichen, give us about a year. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think that should probably, at least we could do it in living dogs. Yes, I absolutely. Ideal, ideal yeah. Yeah. So the, the tolerance to gut commensals by regulatory cells is supposed to be mediated by TGF-beta and IL-10. Um, is it possible to translate that information to graft tolerance um, by local administration of uh, TGF-beta and IL-10? So, I mean, I mean the, other, the other side of this is cell-based therapies for graft tolerance. And so there are people growing up regular FOXP3 positive regulatory cells in big batches. It's being done at King's College in London. There are also people growing up TR1s, which is your flavor of regulatory cells, making TGF-beta and IL-10. Heroic efforts, right, of growing up cells that will suppress the immune response to alloantigen. They're growing up both polyclonal and alloreactive, and we'll see where that stands. The early results are not terribly encouraging in GVHD, but um, that's another possibility. Instead of inducing them in vivo, adoptively transfer them passively to protect the graft, and that, yes, those are f all feasible approaches, which are being done. Mike? Does this approach work in xenotransplantation? Um, yes, except there are other confounding issues with xeno of, uh, of a natural antibody causing real problems, of natural pre-existing antibody. If you, it would work, it, it does work in Xeno if you can get past the pre-existing antibody problem. Yes. Rich. You know, it's once you generate a memory response, whether it is actually once you generate a memory response, the anti-ligand is not great at 
interfering with a T-cell recall response. It's not, because the co-stimulation for memory cells to respond is so, is so minimal that anti-ligand does nothing for recall responses in the T-cell compartment. To recall the B-cell compartment, to activate memory B-cells to make another round of antibody, anti-ligand is quite effective. But in a, getting into a primed individual is a whole nother ball of wax. Absolutely. Chuck, Randy, really interesting. I'm just trying to look at the other side of the coin. Everything that you talked about really is the host impact on the organ. And complete protection is if you get T-rays into that organ. What about the situation where an organ is ischemic, it generates its own inflammatory response, its own immune cells in there are activated? Are these counter, do these have the potential to be counterproductive to the T-Rex coming in? Um, a, a tough question. Um, and so if you, if you silence the host's repertoire of alloreactivity, the response is gone. I mean, so the host will not make a response. I'm, I'm making this up. The host will not make a response if the repertoire of alloreactive cells is eliminated. And that's what the assumption is. It's both eliminated and you've induced regulatory cells. Now, if the, if the donor tissue has an immune compartment, um, of course, that can influence the behavior of the host. But I'm assuming that we've prophylactically um, eradicated the alloreactive T-cell compartment in the host. And that's feasible. We do it all the time to self-antigen. It's nothing magical. Um, and so we should be able to do with alloantigen if we can deliver alloantigen in a calm, quiescent manner. Yeah. Dr. Rigby. Randy, I was just curious. Liver transplantation is a little bit different. And it seems like tolerance can be induced in liver. So what, 40%, you guys know better than I, 40% of liver transplant recipients uh, are, are spontaneously tolerant. Um, and actually, the, does that, is that work in trans to? Um, does it? So co-transplant co of liver, does it tolerize to other matched organs? I don't know the answer to that. Well, other organ, yes. So it does, right? If you look at outcomes of liver, pancreas, liver, intestine, uh, liver, kidney, the outcomes of the corresponding organs have better outcomes, and they do well. Yeah. And actually, but I think part of the, uh, you know, part of the issue with the liver, and it always worries me, is when you look at that, the biopsies of those livers, they are losing, they're rejecting, and so they don't. They constantly turn over. And as long as you can exceed regeneration rate versus loss of cellular rate, you have an organ that's going to last forever, basically. And that's why you minimize immunosuppression in livers. But there is something unique, oh, yeah. unique about the liver as it protects, it controls the response against the other I mean, the story in the liver is that liver dendritic cells are immunosuppressive. They drive the emergence of regulatory T cells. And so you can take liver dendritic cells, adoptively transfer them, and induce tolerance. And also the other confounding issue with liver tolerance is that the genetic signature of toler uh, tolerant liver transplanted individuals is completely different than the signature I showed you for tolerant kidney recipients. And so 
will we ever get a, a, a consensus on what, what the tolerance biomarker looks like? Um, we'll see. Any other questions? Thanks so much, right. Randy. Thank you.